Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. This intervention has crippled us and it's taken authority and power of our people. I want the blanket of the intervention removed so that we can have that breathing space again, so that we can be who we are, so that we can be human beings to maintain the future generation. So this is what we have been fighting for. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Tonight we're bringing you a focus on the legacy of the Northern Territory intervention and its implications for the future survival of traditional Aboriginal homelands. It's been almost 14 years since the Howard government instigated the so-called Northern Territory emergency response and many of the measures it contained are still in place today as part of the Stronger Futures policy introduced in 2012. As you'll soon hear, the controversial policy has done little to address the issues that it was set up for and has instead given rise to a breakdown of the social and cultural frameworks of traditional owners from over 70 remote communities. These were just some of the issues explored during an online forum held last year to mark the 13th anniversary of the strategy. Joining in the conversation was Central Australian Elder Auntie Pat Ansel Dodds, Yolnu Elder and Member of the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly, Yingia Mark Giela, Walpuri Elder Uncle Harry Jackamara Nelson, Barbara Shaw, who is a member of the Intervention Rollback Action Group, international human rights law expert Greg Marks, and Stephen Gray, Senior Lecturer at the Caston Centre for Human Rights at Monash University. Let's listen in now and we begin with Stephen Gray, who is also the head researcher of a report conducted annually to evaluate outcomes of the strategy. Several years ago, I actually lived in Darwin myself for about 15 years, so it came from that experience really, but we started to look at the Northern Territory intervention. I remember when it first came into force and remember from living in Darwin how differently Indigenous people were, were seen by the majority non-Indigenous population. It seemed to be almost a smear, the way that that whole thing was framed way back then, and I don't think it's improved fundamentally since then. So um, it began by repealing the Racial Discrimination Act, or at least amending it so that it didn't apply to Indigenous people, which in itself is an insult and had dramatic effects. And the Labor government, when it came into power, while it restored the operation of the Racial Discrimination Act on its face, it also said that the Northern Territory intervention is a special measure that's applicable and so the idea behind this special measure was that it's meant to be something to improve the lives, something that's specially designed for Indigenous people. So anyway, we produced that first report in 2016 and the Northern Territory intervention that failed on so many measures, things to do with employment, so many of the things that it said it was going to do basically in terms of supposedly overcoming all the things that were meant to be wrong with the lives of Indigenous people. It had failed on in areas of employment. It had failed in health and life expectancy. What we really focused on mainly was incarceration rates. That's uh, Aboriginal imprisonment rates, which, as we all know, I'm sure, have always been a national disgrace. 
and they haven't improved since the Northern Territory intervention. They haven't improved since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody back in the early 90s. In fact, they've got a lot worse. And I was very surprised that the NT intervention never, never even had it as a target, didn't focus upon this issue of incarceration rates, which is really crying out as a national shame. And so that's something that we tried to campaign on fairly hard. We kind of a bit of a marketing tool, I guess, but we scored the intervention between zero and 10 as a way of kind of getting the general media, I guess, to be interested in some of these issues. And so often they are swept under the carpet. And we thought on incarceration rates that the intervention deserved as big fat zero out of 10. And in the most recent version of the report, it hasn't improved on that front. Another area that we thought was very important was the income management regime, as I'm sure you would very well know. Part of the original intervention strategy was to bring in that discriminatory income management regime, which applied across the board to so many Indigenous communities around the Territory and sequestered or took away a large percentage of Indigenous people. I think it was 50% of the original income management regime of of income and forced people onto this basics card, which was a humiliating kind of a thing for people to have to do. And that's still in operation or it's actually been extended in the form of a cashless welfare card now. So that's something that we also also think is important to fight against this idea that welfare can be extended in that way or to be given out, I suppose, um, in such a humiliating way. So that, that was a couple of issues that we, we spoke about. Another one was Indigenous customary law. The intervention took away the ability of courts in the Northern Territory to consider Aboriginal customary law in sentencing and in bail decisions. And Again, that's an overtly discriminatory thing to do. Any other group of people in the the Northern Territory or elsewhere are entitled to have their customs, their rules, everything that's relevant to the person who's being sentenced or who's up in a bail decision can be taken into account by a court, as it should, whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. And yet, when it came to Indigenous people, the people who've been in this country for way, way longer, orders of magnitude longer than anybody else, the colonial authorities took away the ability of the courts to consider that customary law in making bail and sentencing decisions. So again, that's a a pretty outrageous thing and it's still essentially there. So we thought that was something as well that tried to draw the attention of the higher authorities to. That's great context to go into now really talking to people who are on the ground and can give us some insights. Arnie, Pat, over to you. Yeah, thank you. When I look at uh, the history of Australia and our people here, it was devastating because when I was uh, young, my people weren't citizens of this country until 1967. And to me, that's appalling and didn't get recognised until there was a freedom fight by Charlie Perkins and students from New South Wales University. And in my head, all that problem that we had back then is still here. And the way they're treating our children is terrible. I've often walked down the streets and I've told the policeman off, why are you doing that to this kid? He's not grown up, he's a kid. And those children look at me and ask me to help them. And it hasn't stopped. I've seen that kind of behaviour all my life. But now this young man that works at the police station, he's a police officer, he wants to talk to me to try to mend a lot of issues, and I think that's fantastic. But we have a racist government that likes just to get funding off ASMOB, 
from our communities who have fought very hard through land rights and even in town here we fought over native title of Alice Springs and we won and then they want to change it whenever they please. So it's still happening. They don't have any respect. They wanted people to go to Uluru to sign a paper what they wanted, but that's not good enough. Like we got no brains. We have to move forward, keep wanting our treaty, our rights. So governments can't keep changing policies that affect the lives of our people anymore. It's got to stop. And Annie, Pat, if I could just ask you, we're looking back 13 years on from the intervention, and I was wondering if you could share with us what the impact's been on you and what you'd like to see changed going forward. One of the big things I feel is that the kids, the government has to give them the funding that they were allocated to after they fought for their land and set up their own communities and to have like CDP programs so they can go back home, their parents, not stay in Alice Springs, live on Centrelink. It's so important that the kids go back home because there's schools and stuff there as well. Because they come here, they're so mixed up in the head, the whole family, and the kids could run amok and we have to stop it. Send them back home to their country so they can get a job. Give them funding to do that, to run their own councils and everything and employ people on their communities like they did before when they won their land back. Not this stuff dictate to Aboriginal people every time they want something, be racist. How can you change a racism law to get your funding of 73 communities and lock them down? That's disgusting. Okay, thank you, Arnie Pat. Uncle Harry? Thank you, um, Larissa. I'd like to read some of the things I've written down, take a note. The result of the intervention, how it affected my people at Yendamu. The intervention was sprung on us without warning. With no consultation, a lot of lies were told about our communities. Pedophile rings, violence, rivers of grog and dysfunctions. Five prime ministers later, they never took the lies back. Little bit of self-determination we had, they took from us. We no longer have a social council. Local council, I beg your pardon. The council is run from Alice Springs. A big mob of white fellows came and they run everything for us. These outsiders don't talk Walbury and don't understand or respect our culture. It isn't easy for locals to get a job. Most repairs and building is done by outside contractors. Lots of new rules. Biggest lot of money ever spent on Yundamu was more than $7 million to build a new police station. We've got more police than ever and more people in jail than ever. The welfare mob keep taking children away. Don't respect our extended families. White bosses don't respect our elders. Our children see this and also lose respect in us. Everything is done in English. We have no say in running our own lives on our own land. It is like we are under occupation by a foreign power. What is the situation like in Yundamu today? Nothing much has changed. They keep tightening the screws. They're trying to turn us into white fellows. <laughs> we are proud, wildly people. They have no right to control us 
like they do. We want our local council back. We want our houses back. We want police to respect us and stop wearing guns. We want self-determination and respect. We want to run our own lives again, our way. We want the government and the media to stop lying about us, lying to us. We want them to listen to us. Only then will we listen to them. Thank you. Uncle Harry, I wonder if the Prime Minister came to visit you, what would you show him and like him to know about the changes that you want today? You know, we all know what we think about these bosses, how they've been treating us and uh, our attitude towards uh, these gubbos or white fellas or whatever you like to call them. Uh, well, it's the same. The feeling right throughout the uh, our nation of Aboriginal people throughout mm-hmm. Australia is the same. Our attitude towards them is not 100% sure. We're not quite sure with our white people that we work. Some we do. With some, we do. Thank you, Uncle Harry. I'm going to now ask Greg Marks to share some insights with us now. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. What I want to do is just to try and provide, from how I understand it, an overview of the changes in government policy impacting on Aboriginal communities in the Territory over the past 15 years. So I'm taking the perspective a little bit wider than 13 back to the intervention because I think some of these things started a couple of years before the intervention and they all sort of worked together. So I I think there's been like a tsunami of change coming from a few different directions at the Northern Territory and causing a lot of damage to the lives of Aboriginal people. I think it's a bit hard to track all these different elements of this stuff, which is partly the way that governments get away with these things. So I'll put one critical date for a start, 2004, because 2004 is the abolition of ATSIC. Once ATSIC was out of the way, the government had a clear run because there's no large, resourced, independent body to call them out. So it loaded the dice in the favour of government. Now, the main strands of this tsunami, as I see it, the first one is so-called land tenure reform. Uh, That's where Aboriginal townships are leased back to the government for 99, 40 years. So that started in 2006, just before the intervention actually started. That reform is all about control. It's the Commonwealth Government taking back control of major Aboriginal communities across the Territory. The Government needed an excuse, and the excuse is the security of assets. They say they will not fund houses, schools, infrastructure without a lease. I mean, they did so for 30 years before that, but suddenly found that it was impossible without a lease. So what is the motive behind this land tenure reform, they call it? And the motive, I'm quite sure, is to get traditional owners out of the decision-making process. That's the main objective. So no matter what level of consultation might go on after a 99-year lease is signed, really, it's the government that makes the decisions for the next 99 years. So that's three or four generations. So the control of the land for the communities to sign up, as I said, is effectively alienated. It's lost to Aboriginal people. And these communities are where the majority of Aboriginal people outside the regional towns live. So it's a major target, really. So another object of this tenure reform was to break up communal ownership. Right? So the argument was that residents would be able to own their homes by subleases. Now, the government was just hooked on individuals owning homes because that's what white people do, basically. The second strand, and the most dramatic, of course, is the intervention itself. It's changes to a whole lot of stuff. We know Social Security, compulsory leases, police stations, customary law, 
All those things are talked about. And for that, as we know, any excuse would do for public consumption and the Little Children uh, Sacred Report provided perfect cover for the intervention. So here we had the army, government business managers. It was a massive rollback of the right to self-determination. It imposed discriminatory measures, got rid of the protections of the Racial Discrimination Act, used the bogus excuse of special measures. With special measures, what they basically said was that we're going to take away your rights so we can give you rights. It doesn't really add up, of course. But I don't need to go on with that because everybody knows about the intervention. Aboriginal people have lived the thing. Aboriginal people have been to the UN about it. UN special rapporteurs have been to Australia and criticised it. And then, of course, you've got Stronger Futures, which is mark two of the intervention. The third strand of this uh, tsunami, it's the attempted slow death of the outstations movement. So this time, the excuse was that outstations and homeland communities were not viable. So the government from about 2005 on wanted to get rid of outstations and homelands. There's absolutely no doubt about that. I've sat across the board from the architects of these policies, and that's what it's all about, getting rid of outstations and homelands. But they were too smart to just try and close them all down at once. For one thing, there were too many people living on outstations. So to close them down straight away, it would have been too difficult. So what they went for instead was what I'm calling the slow strangulation approach the starving of funds and services approach. This is, sounds pretty cynical, but they are prepared for older Aboriginal people to live out their lives in homelands communities. What they were after was the younger generations to get them into larger communities or towns, to break their connection, their attachment to their traditional country. So the approach was to give the Arstatians no real future, to stop them growing, to make daily life a struggle, a battle just to keep things going. And this is where the defunding of outstation housing came in. That's the critical element. And the key to that was a memorandum of understanding, an agreement between the Commonwealth Government and the NT Government about accommodation and infrastructure on Aboriginal communities. And that agreement was signed in September 2007. So that comes just two or three months after the intervention. But of course, these things aren't coincidental. With that MOU, well, the NT Government was over a barrel. It was one of those... uh, things where you don't have a choice. They had to sign up. And no Aboriginal organisations at all were ever involved in the development of this critical MOU. So in that MOU, the arrangements for outstations and homelands funding since self-government in 1978 were completely overturned. So this was a radical move and not a single Aboriginal organisation was involved. And really the NT government, if you look at the letters between Claire Martin and John Howard, the NT government didn't have nowhere to turn. They either signed up to this MOU or they got nothing for housing. So the Commonwealth said in that MOU that there would be no more Commonwealth funding for new or rebuilt or refurbished housing and infrastructure on those communities. They just threw the outstations and homelands communities to the NT government, knowing that it did not have the resources to take this up. So the MOU, specifically, it's there in black and white, ruled out support for 500 communities across the Territory. That was a lot of communities and a lot of people. So this, I think, is a fact of fundamental importance. And I think outside the Territory, at least, hardly anybody knows about this. And I think even inside the Territory, most people often find it difficult to figure out just what's gone on. They know it's happened on the ground, but what's the policy? Where's all the bits of paper about this? The Commonwealth Government tried to keep this MOU secret, but it fell off the back of a truck and it's now publicly available. So the question is... Uh, what has happened to our stations and homelands as a result of these policies. So if you look at the population statistics, we find that today there are approximately 6,500 people 
living in 380 homelands communities. In 2006, there were about 10,000, maybe more, living in about 560 communities. So from that to 6,500, that is a big decline. That's a big population loss at the time that the Aboriginal population of the Northern Territory has been growing. So the decline in the number of people living in small communities, that's under 200 residents, so that includes some other communities that aren't outstations, but the figures recently worked out for that. That's been in a quite steep and unrelenting decline since 2007. People have gone to the larger communities or to town. So why? Well, they've gone basically because the housing stock is now very old, overcrowded, dilapidated. The NT government provides money for repairs and maintenance and improvements, but that's a fraction of what's needed. So there's no room for growth, no aspirations for the future, and as well, other services, schools, health have been wound back as well. So without the chance to have new houses or to rebuild houses, the future must look pretty bleak for many people living in homelands and outstations, I think. Now, of course, Aboriginal people have shown independence and initiative. They live in sheds, in caravans, etc., in order to stay on their lands, but it should not be like this. So that just brings me to what about the future? And I think the key thing to know uh, on this strand is that the NT government has had a major review of Homeland's policy running for over a year. The consultant's report from this review is now finished and is with the Northern Territory government. That report could be very important, depending what is in it and how the NT government responds to it. But there may be some hope here, and I think it would be important for people to try and keep a close eye out for this report and the reaction of the government when it becomes public. One problem is the report and the NT elections might overlap, so that might cause problems as well. But I think it might be important. So in summary, the essential goals of Aboriginal policy settings in the Northern Territory has been sidelining traditional ownership in the townships, reasserting control over the lives of Aboriginal people, and slowly emptying the countryside of the many small to medium-sized communities referred as outstations and homelands. So I think the major objective now, for all people concerned, has to be to bring the Commonwealth Government back into the story for funding support for homelands and housing. It's not good enough for the Commonwealth to wash its hands of this responsibility and to marginalise homelands and outstations. So there may be hope, as I was saying, and I think perhaps the days of the hardline hard ministers might be over, you know, the bruffs, the vanstones, and maybe the even slightly softer hardliners from Labor. Uh, the Times might be suiting homelands again, and maybe they'll be able to take their rightful place alongside other Aboriginal communities in the Territory. So when you put these three separate but intertwined strands together, you know, the leases, the intervention, the attack on homelands, the negative impact of the last 15 years comes into clear focus. I mean, people have lived it, and you can see why much you start to pull these strands together. So this is the lived experience for Aboriginal people. This is a tsunami that has to be turned back for people to regain self-determination and dignity. These have been, I think, the wasted years. You've just heard international human rights law expert Greg Marks. He was speaking at an online forum held last year to mark 13 years since the implementation of the Northern Territory intervention. You also heard from Central Australian Elder Auntie Pat Ansel Dodds, Uncle Harry Jackamara Nelson and Stephen Gray, Senior Lecturer at the Custon Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. 
I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight, we're bringing you a focus on the ongoing impact the Northern Territory intervention is having on targeted remote Aboriginal communities. Let's return now to the conversation and we pick up with Yolnu Elder and member of the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly, Yingya Giyula. A strong advocate for a treaty, he was elected to Parliament in 2016 and continues to lobby for an end to the measures imposed under the intervention. Good evening, everyone. This is 13 years since the intervention came into our communities. And I was on one of the communities when the intervention came through. During that time, watching, and it came right in, in front of me. And I was there when the first wave of police, army, no force arrived, and I saw it all happen. I even went and offered my assistance to try and help, which that then we were all not sure what the good thing was going to be coming out of this intervention. People thought it was time to build our communities and make it stronger and, and as a prosper future for our people. That's what everyone was all excited about in our communities, watching everything coming onto land. But then uh, we started off uh, helping out and I stood there in between the people in the community and the government or the intervention and did a interpreter service when in 2007 they came and uh, the children that we had then was well behaved and had a good discipline and health checks were done in a, a movable the hospital type um, tent that they brought in and built next to the, the community health center that was there already so we help them and there were checks done with the teenagers they were all at this stage were looking at 15 years or 16 years older kids and there was not much or no active STs or sexual active in the communities it was because the children were living in communities that were really well behaved and our elders had power and strength and knew what to do and how, how to look after our young people and then I saw negative changes happening. Our elders, senior leaders, parents, and everyone had been undermined and told they were not doing the right thing their way. Everybody seemed to be in confusion that we started to be impacted by what had hit us through this intervention that came through. And people were really confusing and Children could start talk back, swear back at parents and seeing unusual things happening to our children. And that was the outcome of this intervention that came through. People started to enroll, brought in and was signed in for work for the doll. CDP used to work on homelands and in communities were projects that used to run. But everybody, the government then through intervention said everybody needs to come in and sign in to what they call work for the doll. And when they came in, all our countrymen came in and said, this is my certificate, which I gained during while I was working in, in communities through the land community council and the local government and how things were going. We have been doing an apprenticeship 
and people said, I have a certificate which I'm a qualified plumber working here, a tradesman. Some of them were working in administration, in offices. But through intervention, they said, you won't be needing this. You need to sign up another form with the Centrelink here and to achieve white card, then call white card or a yellow ochre card so that you can work on work for the doll. Sign up on Centrelink and come every day to the Centrelink and sign up, and which disabled everybody. If I would have been there that time, or I would have said, I am a aircraft maintenance engineer, and I'm sure that I would have been told, no, you, you won't be needing this anymore. You need to sign this work for the doll. That's how this intervention has crippled us, and it's taken authority and, and power of our people. I want the blanket of the intervention removed so that we can have that breathing space again, so that we can be who we are, so that we can be human beings to maintain the future generation. So this is what we have been fighting for. This is why we have been fighting for. Since then, uh, when the Stronger Futures came through and I met with elders who were starting to talk about let's try and work on this and let's try and petition the government to stop this intervention, to stop this stronger future. It is just disempowering our people. It has just taken powers of our leaders. So I started working together with them and we started to form a Yoruba Nations Assembly, Yoruba Nations Assembly, which we could advocate with the government. And during that time, uh, 2006, 2015, uh, the elections were coming up and I said to myself, maybe I'll try and get a bit higher where I can start advocating with the government. So I decided to run on the 2016 election and um, I won on the platform of treaty. And That's how I got here. This is not something that I want or enjoy working, but I had to be brave to stand here, to to come up here, not knowing where I am heading, but I, I'm just standing here to call, stop that uh, blanket of the intervention and roll back the stronger futures and the policies, the uh, colonial system of looking after, trying to stand all over us. We want to be who we are, and we want to see where our people are going into. We need the government to step back, and we need an apology. Today, we need an apology for what has happened. This is not an area. This is not the people we want to be. We we can think for ourselves. We can determine for ourselves. We can create things for ourselves and we can work and understand. We would rather want to make that a pathway. Let's Palanda and Yolmo work together. Let's Palanda and Yolmo make a pathway where we both walk together alongside, not assimilated. Do not manipulate us to be under your system of law. But Yolmo Romorongo, And we stay with the Yolngo Romorongo, which is a Yolngo ways first within our system, and you have your Balanda Balanda Romorongo.
but do not let us be under your system of law. And this is where we, I strongly declare that we need apology. We need apology. My people and I need apology right around the Northern Territory, right around Australia, so that we can be living and so that we can change policies that starts with genuine self-determination and the acknowledgement of our sovereignty and who we are. Thank you. Thank you. It is my great pleasure to uh, now introduce Amelia Pengati, Kunith Monks, who at the time when the intervention rolled out was a very young Arunta woman from Utopia, a youth leader still, but she was supporting her grandmother, the phenomenal elder Rosalie Kunith Monks, who was also a very strong voice. But Amelia emerged at the time as a very strong voice in her own right and has been incredibly strong on highlighting what has happened with the intervention, particularly around the compulsory income management and mental health impact of the intervention. She flew across the country and spoke in Sydney and Melbourne and has continued to be a strong voice in the Northern Territory. So I'm incredibly proud to be able to introduce Amelia to you tonight. Thank you for having me. Um, We're now 13 years in the Northern Territory emergency response and I haven't seen anything change, not to my knowledge. I haven't seen anything change to where our languages are being taught in school to where we are allowed to practice our cultural essence. We we had our 10-year anniversary of the Northern Territory Emergency Response back in 2017, and here we are in 2020, three years under the Stronger Futures. We've got another two years, and then we'll have a review of where the policies for us will take us. It's very hard to see where our youth is at the moment. I feel heartache because our youth get into trouble because there is nothing. There's no programs for them or leaders who are there. They don't have good role models because they're forever watching stuff on YouTube about how to be a gangster and all like that. It's, it's very disconcerting of where our youth is heading. You just have to look at our suicide rates. You know, it's it's very hard. I was speaking to my grandmother last night on the drive back home and I asked her the question, how do you see our youth? Where do you think they're going? And she said to me that there are no role models for them. They're in this predicament of where they want to have their culture and be who they want to be and be themselves, but they are also told to just stay down there don't move. We'll do everything for you so you can be run amok and just not have a future. We'll take that future for you. As the stuff on my homeland out at Utopia, Alpra itself has become the hub town. There is no funding for the 16 homelands to get new houses. What they're trying to do is push us into that hub town still to this day so that they can do mining. There is this whole gap between our First Nations people and our non-First Nations people. But that's not our non-First Nation people's fault. I don't blame them at all. What I blame 
is their government and their policies. Here we are in 2020 and we're still classified as flora and fauna. We're still counted in the census. We're not even in the constitution as human beings. We're still animals and flowers. Thank you, Amelia. I just wonder, though, if you could share with us what your hopes are going forward, what sorts of things are on your agenda for change. Do you believe in the treaty? You know, what sorts of things do you think would make a difference on the ground from where you are and what you've seen and what you believe in? I, I do believe in the treaty. I believe that we need to have this treaty. Constantly to my grandmother, I've said, where we are now is not a good place between First Nations people and non-First Nations people. And until Australia grows up, we're not going to get very far with our government because time for talk is over. It really is. There is no communication with our government who can come to the table and sit with us. You just have to look at what Vincent Lingiari went through. Look at that walk off. And where are we today? We're still there. Not much has changed since my eldest days. Well, thank you very much for sharing that with us. Now, I am so pleased to be able to be in a position to introduce you to this next troublemaker. One of the people I really admire when the intervention happened, Barbara Shaw was right out the gate as one of the great spokespeople and warriors around this issue. Barbara's Aranta, Katichi, Walpri and Waramangu from Alice Springs. She's the first female deputy chair for the Central Land Council for the new CEO. She's involved in the working group for the Uluru Statement. She was an engagement officer for the Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory. She's a cultural carer within her own family and, of course, a founding member and current member of the Intervention Rollback Action Group, or IRAG. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And I don't know what I can say. I've, like you said, been there for the last 13 years, watched John Howard and Mal Brupp announce it on ABC, and I've been fighting ever since because I knew that I was doing the right thing by my family, my children, my elders, and standing up for what was right. I'd have to say, Pani Pat, you know, the She's right in saying support for family and children to be out on country. Uncle Harry's been a vocal elder, leader in Yundamu since day one also. And our honourable member for Nulamboy, he says it all and he's spot on. Even though he's from Yulungu Nation in the top end and I come from the centre, there's nothing's changed between us. As of, I guess, now, there might have been minor changes to our lives, but Worst of all, it's changed for the worst. You know, we just had Greg Marks talk and Stephen Gray talk about statistics and what had happened and then all of these reports coming in, going into both territory government, federal government, but then these reports and commissions, reviews, they've all just probably swept past the eyes of all these parliamentarians over the years, over the last 13 years. Like Uncle Harry said, you know, we've had five prime ministers, four to five prime ministers, no one's taken any notice. Over the last 13 years, you know, from 2007, I was a very angry and emotional person around the policies and how it was affecting our mob. Not only us in the northern, in our major town centres, Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, Catherine, Darwin, and, you know, up at Nullumboy because they're the major town centres that services our communities or our homelands 
but they also our mob travel in and out of these town centres or service centres. So, you know, when it first came out, I, all I thought was of my grandfather, you know, was my initial thought is how is he going to understand the legislation? And then knowing that he's caretaker and living out on my homeland that I got handed back in 1988, straight after the Barunga Statement was handed to Bob Hawke. I began to realise that if we're going to keep protesting, you know, you're going to have that other element in our society saying, you know, we don't need protesters or you've got an opponent that's going to feed false lies to the rest of Australia saying, you know, there's no police brutality, there's no child abuse happening in our communities. Well, for a fact, we know that it's happening. We know that being part of the Royal Commission and looking at children being abused in the detention centres or in and out of home care. And we've been very diplomatic, you know. So I'm in a position now, you know, with the Central Land Council and also still with Tungandura Council and just speaking up on issues that affect our mob and how governments and agencies can help our mob. And, And I am a big, strong believer in constitutional change and supporting treaty because if we were added into the constitution, and we had our rights to our culture, our language, our land, the intervention wouldn't have been in place and it would have been, it would have had to have been a block. But I believe there are people out there that are willing and caring, compassionate people that are able to help and stand up for people like myself or people like our elders out in remote communities or on homelands. Even to this day, you know, we're still talking about how there's no jobs for people out there. It was all taken over by the Shire when CDP was scrapped. Our housing situation is worse than ever. And I sit, you know, as a co-chair for Aboriginal Housing NT, and we talk about housing issues all the time and trying to get better housing conditions fixed for our people. And in reality, there is no such thing as an Aboriginal person living as a nuclear family. It will never happen. It's just like when the coronavirus kicked in, you wasn't going to separate us by isolating us because that wasn't in our culture because we're family orientated and we're people of gatherings. So we were actually safer at home in our with our families than being isolated, you know, because we don't know isolation unless we've gone to jail or we sit down in hospital for a long time. So education, the statistics on education is right because I work as a youth worker at night and I know for a fact that a lot of our kids on the streets here in Alice Springs don't go to school. And it's pretty sad that they can adopt another culture, but yet our youth aren't educated enough to be caretakers and take over their grandfather and their grandmother's roles in their communities or out on country. And it's sad to say there are no programs or there's no support mechanisms in place for our elders and our leaders to start teaching our younger generation to become those elders and leaders in the future. So, you know, wherever I can, I stand up for what is needed and our people actually need to be recognised and our people need to be listened to because if no one listens today, who's going to listen in the future? So it's, it's the best thing to start teaching our kids or our next generation about what had happened in the past because what's going to happen in the past is going to just keep continuing until somebody gets it right and until we get the right people in parliament. And people like 
our member from Nulumboy, he's doing the right thing, you know, and people are starting to talk, but we need to, might have to start listening to our member from the top end. And, you know, if you get people like Uncle Harry who says, I've been there before, I've been fighting the fight for so long, generations after generation, and yet here I am still today, living in the same community where nothing's changed. And I've got to say, you know, out of Utopia, you still have people living in tin sheds and whatever material that they can find. And I know that because I've got family out that way as well. And when you look at the current situation with the coronavirus, it was really hard on food security for our mob in our community stores because we already know with the intervention, the food prices went up. So people are still buying a lot less for a high price of food, you know. So the high cost of living out in remote communities has not helped our mob close the gap on health. A lot of our mob are still suffering with diabetes, heart problem, kidney failure, the lack of identity when it comes to being somebody who belongs on on country. You know, we get so much racism in this town. We're, We're the biggest high populated police town in little alone Australia, but, you know, in, in the Territory. And after what happened last year with Kumanjay Walker, it was really hard to try and have those conversations with the police because it's going to take a long time for our mob to start trusting police again. You know, they came in with the army in 2007 and yet they can't focus on trying to keep our kids at school. You know, so when it comes to a lot of issues that affect us, black lives do matter because we need a roof over our heads. We need to keep our kids out of jail. We need to keep our men and women safe from family and domestic violence. You know, we need to make sure there are proper food security for our people in remote communities and we need to close the gap on our health and our life expectancy. And the government is not going to do that alone unless they start listening to us and working generally with us. And I've had these decent conversations with Federal Minister Ken Wyatt. So, you know, I I believe that he is a good understanding person and, you know, I've got to take my hat off to him because he's the first Aboriginal person who's ever had this role and we should be having these genuine conversations with him. And he needs to start listening because in WA they were having all of those community closures. And, you know, suicide is also affecting Aboriginal people in WA, you know, sacred site damages, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Just maybe one thing just to get your final thoughts on there, Barb, is I'm interested, you worked on the Royal Commission that came out of the horrendous images from Dondale and you've worked with the land councils, you've done the UN complaint, working in the housing, you <laughs> It's, you know, you're doing everything. I was wondering how you, in all the things you do, where do you think we see the most change and can make the most difference? And I was particularly interested in in your thoughts around how important representation in Parliament is. Well, I I ran as a candidate for the Greens Party, both in the federal election and territory election. But um, I, I guess it is because you know, I wouldn't be able to win a seat in Alice Springs given this element in this town. But, yeah, I reckon the best thing you need is an Aboriginal person, especially for our bush seats that's most marginalised, 
Oh, but they're starting to shift the boundaries now, so there's less seats in Parliament. But you have to have the right people in there, you know, like Claire Martin, Paul Henderson days, you know, we had a lot of Aboriginal MLAs in the past, but I believe that they should have done a lot more to stand up for us against the federal John Howard era and as well as Tony Abbott, you know, when he ran the country. But when we have our own people representing our own people in Parliament because it's the legislators that's going to make a change and if our legislators and our members of Parliament are going to make a difference to our people, or well, you know, that's where it's got to be. And then you've got those, you know, non-Aboriginal people that have been around Aboriginal people for a long time or First Nations peoples that know the issues and they know what's needed. They're the ones that are also to be supported. So it's the people who's going to make a change are the legislators and we need to get on those legislators' ears. You've just heard from Barb Shaw, an Arunta Karachi Walpuri and Waramungu woman, and a member of the Intervention Rollback Action Group. You've also been listening to Central Australian youth leader Amelia Pangati Kunath Monks, and Yolnu elder and member of the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly, Yinya Giyula. They were speaking as part of an online panel discussion marking 13 years of the Northern Territory Intervention. The forum was organised by the Intervention Rollback Action Group, Concerned Australians and Stop the Intervention Collective Sydney. To take us out this evening, we'll leave you with some music from Dan Sultan. Here he is with Old Fitzroy.
That was Dan Sultan with Old Fitzroy. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when a group of academics and industry leaders consider the legacy of our colonial past and its implications for a reconciled future. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.